0: Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Hello, how is everyone? I hope all our listeners are are well. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Mitch Corby. I'm a partner at Herrick Feinstein and chair of our zoning and land use team. As I hope most listeners know, we've got a very active and robust real estate department at Herrick, of which I am a part. And we handle a broad number of of deals for many clients who we partner with on projects throughout the city and in a lot of cases throughout the country. Today, we have the great, great pleasure of having Basha from Red with us. And we're going to talk about a very important zoning and land use topic. That uh, I think has been slightly underreported, but is uh, something that folks, I think, increasingly are aware of. And that is converting older office buildings to residential use in order to provide for new housing units in the city to help address the tremendous need we have right now in the five boroughs for new housing opportunities. So, welcome, Basha. And thank you once again for joining us. You've been with us before. How are you?
1: thank you mitch for having me today i'm doing well uh, again this is basha Gerhardt, senior vice president of planning at the real estate board and excited to talk about office conversions
0: terrific so we're going to just jump right on in and maybe we start with a little bit of history what's very interesting about new york's zoning and our and our building stock is that we allow for the recycling of buildings that is buildings take on a different life after they've had a had a particular purpose for many years and whether that new life is a hotel or a residential building for a building that was once an office building or or some other kind of use, um, it, it's noteworthy and important that our rules are flexible enough to allow this kind of, as Basha, you said a moment ago, the adaptive reuse of buildings. So today we allow this in New York to a certain extent. And it's one of the reasons why lower Manhattan, downtown in particular, now has 30,000 residents living in it. Because we've allowed the conversion of multiple office buildings in, in lower Manhattan. And that those conversions have effectively recycled buildings from a former use to a brand new new use. Generally speaking, from an older office building to uh, to residential units. So, uh, Basha, um, tell us a little bit about what the city is thinking about and, and right now is in the throes of doing. Why it's important and how it's going to expand, hopefully, upon what we have already today.
1: That's an excellent question. So I can't uh, speak to what the the city itself is thinking as it's a – you know, large government body. <laughs> but here, here's what here's what I'm thinking. Um, you had a, a bit of a Freudian slip in there for a moment when you said uh, lice, and that made me chuckle because it's the Multiple Dwelling Law, uh, which was passed in 1929 to replace the Tenement Act, that actually authorizes the city to even do conversions of, of properties and 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 recycle buildings, as you were saying under Article One, Chapter Five. And and I want us to keep in mind the Multiple Dwelling Law because that was. Um, that established bulk standards, light and air standards, and, and really thought through and in some way controls what New York City can and can't do, um, and, and really is, is sets that that statewide, I wouldn't say the, the citywide framework, but it's setting it up in Albany. Um, in 1960, the MDL was amended to facilitate the changes that were done in the 1961 zoning resolution. This is when the 12-FAR limitation was established, and I think one of the things that's important for us to keep in mind with the 1961 zoning resolution, which is what we still use today as amended. It was really predicated on this idea of a separation of uses and, and everything kind of flows from that um, while keeping this concept of light and air standards um, that the MDL authorized, and that the zoning resolution um, has had in some ways predating uh, the multiple dwelling law going back to the 1916 resolution. And, and the reason, again, I, I laughed about the lice piece is um when we think about recycling buildings, New York City has always recycled its buildings. Uh, that that predates MDL, that predates zoning. But when we look at the, I want to say the regulatory framework we have right now, in a lot of ways, that's frozen in time. And we have these constraints on recycling buildings built after 1961 um, and on buildings that are built after 1977 if they happen to be below Murray Street.
0: So- Um, What steps are needed? What are the things that we need to do as a city to make today's rules more flexible, to capture more buildings and to essentially do what you just said? And what, what is the hope? What is the dream here that might come out of such a thing?
1: So from a uh, historic preservation standpoint, uh, which which some will laugh if, if the Real Estate Board is talking about historic preservation, but historic preservation has a long history of adaptive reuse and, and thinking how buildings can be used for different uses um, while keeping the actual structure. So the Secretary of Interior talks about adaptive reuse and rehabilitation as a really important treatment option for the maintaining of the built environment. So one of the things that's a challenge in, in the New York City context is, again, zoning resolution doesn't want uses mixing. It it, it really seems to encourage purpose-built structure, um, encourages separation of uses on both a district-level basis and, and in some ways on a corridor basis. So in a lot of ways, I think what we're really looking for at the end of the day is flexibility. Flexibility of, of use within a building, flexibility of where... Where and how that density should be applied when you think about, you know, we have commercial office buildings that have a floor area ratio of 18, 20, 23. If you keep that building and you walk by it, does it really matter what's going on inside of it? um, from a streetscape perspective, what matters from a streetscape perspective is that there are people going in and out of buildings and that there's a vibrant street life. You get a vibrant street life when you have foot activity, which is what we see in lower Manhattan as a result of those programs. And that means you're, you have an active retail corridor. So those are all,
0: I think of the, um, of two, two buildings come to mind. Um, if, if you're, if you're a fan of friends, the sitcom, and you have a certain age, I guess, uh, the opening credits of Friends show Union Square, and you can see for a brief moment what used to be the Guardian Life Insurance Company building on the uh, the north northeast corner of Union Square. That is now the W Hotel. And it's a wonderful example of what you just mentioned, Basha, of a historic building um, that has taken on a new and very vibrant life. I also think of the AIG building in Lower Manhattan, iconic Art Deco Tower, what is that, 70 Pine Street, and it is a beautiful slender tower that is now, you know, uh, 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 residential, but was of course for, for uh, most of its life, since the 20s, uh, an office tower. Um, both landmark buildings, both examples of of of, of adaptive reuse. Um, so the question of light and air, which which you raised, has a, its roots, of course, as you mentioned, in the multiple dwelling law, dates back many years to the days of of uh, what we used to call slums and and the the terrible conditions in the lower, what what was on the Lower East Side during the Jacob Rees era. Uh, How do we address these questions of light and air when you think about the reuse of these buildings and expanding this rule to post-1961 buildings?
1: So, uh, there's a number of challenges in post 1961 buildings, both from a size of the floor plate. Um, we we're talking about much larger buildings, much larger floor plates, uh, the facade treatments, whether they're operable windows or not. Um, You know, again, going back to 1961 zoning, this idea of we have to separate the uses and there's different standards for different uses. You know, pre-1961, were commercial buildings necessarily built to a different standard of yards than residential buildings? Maybe not. But post-1961, definitely commercial office buildings have a requirement for a 20-foot rear yard. Residential buildings have a requirement for a 30-foot rear yard. I would hope no one wants substandard housing as a result of this. So maintaining light and air standards is really important. Important as part of this conversation. The question is what flexibility can be given to ensure that light and air is getting into, into bedrooms and, and into living quarters? So, a couple of things that are going to be important in the post 61 universe is the ability to remove portions of the building. Um, you know, that may be challenging structurally, that may be challenging based on where the core is or where the I refer to both the elevator core and the systems core um, or that could be really easy commercial buildings require a lot more elevators than residential buildings so it's feasible if you have a central core that you take out one of those elevator cores and that creates your your light and air well and there is no removal of the building fabric itself. Um, in other cases, that may not be an option. Uh, for some of these buildings, you have uh, curtain wall uh, construction. Um, curtain walls themselves aren't meant to last uh, forever. They are meant to be replaced. Um, that replacement timeframe uh, has probably been moved up a lot uh, with the adoption of local law 97. So, so that's certainly a concern from an energy efficiency and sustainability lens. Uh, so that's a, both a cost driver and a, and a barrier, but it's not necessarily a zoning problem per se.
0: So uh, the building that I'm talking to you from and talking to everyone from, uh, Two Park Avenue, uh, which is where Herrick Feinstein has been located for decades, it has a very fat floor plate, which is to say it's a big building. And as you point out, the whole center of the building is quite distanced from the windows and rendered not usable in the residential context because it lacks light and air. Of course, this is a a pre-61 building. So even right. e- there, even some pre sixty one buildings that are that are as big as the Empire State Building, but not as tall, right? Because they're fat, they have a lot of floor area, but they're fat. Um, is there anything we can do about buildings like this one? And then, of course, post sixty one buildings, uh, can we think of innovative things like mix of uses on the same floor, or is that going a bridge too far?
1: I think it depends on who you're talking to in some ways. And when we're talking about, right. If we're like, how flexible do we want to be just if it's just you and me, um, You know, do I want bedrooms in the middle of those floor plates? Absolutely not. Should we be more creative about and acknowledging that this whole conversation is happening in in a hybrid environment where I I didn't come to your office, even though we're both talking from our offices? Um, Should there be home offices in the middle of those floor plates? Can we make really amazing um, playroom space and and workspace and and I want to say we have to talk about amenity spaces, um, indoor recreation spaces. Ah, now you're um, speaking my language. Right. Yeah. So the technology is so different than when the zoning resolution was drafted, and even from 10 years ago, there's been leaps and bounds in in I want to say indoor air quality and lighting and and the, you know maintaining human comfort and making it not feel like you're in the middle of a box. Again. I don't want to see a bedroom in the middle of that floor plate, but are there better things that we could be doing with that space from not just the building perspective, but from the community perspective? Um, You know, one of the practical things we have to think about is, Um, trash. You know, So what are we doing in the base of our buildings? Where are we putting things in the waterfront? Zoning text, we we do a lot of wrapping of, uh, I want to say, less desirable uses. Um, Are there ways for us to think about other things that buildings need or neighborhoods need, um, such as battery storage or energy storage moving forward that could be in the middle of these buildings and wrapped? And is there a way to do that safely? Right now, zoning doesn't want you to do that. Building code probably doesn't want you to do that. And FDNY definitely doesn't want you to do that, right? So these are things and challenges we have to think through as we think through what do the future of our buildings look like.
0: Well, I'd like to make you a planning czar and you can wave a wand and make all this ha- happen, but, but uh, speaking practically, right? So, so what, what are the cost constraints here? Do you have a sense of, of, of assuming we, we want to take a, a building that it was built in 1973 and you know, we're somewhere in you know, Midtown South area? What are we talking about here just from a, a practical standpoint?
1: So I think for any of these conversions, it, it's hard to make a, a systems level estimate. Oh, it's, it's definitely going to cost X per square foot and, and we're going to get this type of return. Um not saying, but people won't do that, right? Like that's that's part of public policy making. But I think what's important to think about are drivers. So, what are the key financial drivers for whether someone can pursue, you know, the feasibility of a conversion? Putting aside the regulatory barriers. So, so assuming, regardless of age, the the building meets those light and air standards, it has sufficient yards, sufficient distance between windows. Now we're just focusing in on what's happening within the building envelope itself, or or the building uh, facade itself. So the floor plate size uh, is going to continue being a financial driver in the conversation. Um, The bigger the floor plate, the less efficient it is in terms of laying out apartments. So that's going to be a a driver in terms of loss. Um, The facade becomes a cost driver itself. Um, Curtain wall can add up to $100 per square foot in hard cost, And this is due to the operable window requirements for, for having dwelling units. Uh, timing starts to become important. So I, I said, let's assume for a moment reg- the regulatory universe aligns. Um, that's a pretty big assumption. Um, if the regulatory changes are needed, whether it's at the state level or at the local level or the building code level, you know, going beyond the zoning resolution, that adds cost. But another cost is actually the time to empty the building. Uh, every architect and engineer I've spoken to when I, I floated the idea about, oh, what about converting a floor by floor or allowing for different uses on a floor? Uh, I did, I was not greeted by happy looks. Uh, they're like, how am I going to put in the risers? How am I going to put in the systems? A gut rehab is best. So that, that timing perspective, that, that time to empty the building, um, what what is what time is left on the lease? How many tenants are, are left? There There's cost to all of that. Um, if you are an owner of a large commercial uh, portfolio, maybe you're able to offer a space in a different building, a better space in a better building um, but if you're if you're, if you have a smaller portfolio it's just the one building that's not really an option so what is the cost of emptying your building and losing that revenue over the time um, it would take I would say the last driver's location you mentioned Midtown south so where in Midtown south is it on a corridor where there's a really amazing uh, building that um, is is uh, I want to say achieving flight to quality from all the buildings around it, and doesn't matter what those other buildings do, they will never compete with with that trophy building. Or is it on a corridor that is mostly residential and no one wants to, no one sees it as an office building anymore to to start?
0: Excellent. I'm thinking of of my building here, and here I sit, and my windows are operable because this building was built in the 19 early 1930s. Um, I assume that a lot of buildings as you approach. The early '60s uh, don't have operable windows, so just just that cost alone, uh, as you said, it, it can be can be significant. What about affordable housing? Uh, obviously, that's a, a you know super important goal and a tremendous need in the city right now. Uh, how do you envision that uh, playing a role in, in this this discussion? And of course, the city is in, as I said at the beginning, the city is in the throes now of, of studying this. Um, I'm assuming, uh, and I, I think you probably are too, right, that the city is, is considering affordable housing as it begins this discussion.
1: So uh, a local law was passed in December 2021 creating a city task force, and that city task force is tasked with looking at um, adaptive reuse of office buildings, inclusive of affordable housing, life sciences, childcare centers, uh, whole gamut of things, and looking at financial incentives. Um, It would be a mistake to not consider affordable housing given our housing crisis writ large and the widening gap between income, rent burden, and and cost of an apartment. Um, I think one of the things that's really important to keep in mind in all of these conversations is affordable housing isn't free. Um, Affordable rents are typically set below the operating cost for the unit itself. Um, Affordable rents means that you don't necessarily have sufficient revenue to pay for the construction or ongoing tax burden. Um, And that's why there's typically government tools to offset that loss or to fill that gap. And, you know, right now we're absent a number of tools. We're absent 421A and whatever replacement for that could be. Um, That is not actively under discussion in the sense of no one has put forward a, a proposal since the end of session, um, from government, uh, J 51 expired J 51, uh, used to generate most of the new stabilized, um, apartments. It was used as a tool for office conversions in some cases or conversions of, uh, I want to say warehouse buildings and other geographies, um, and was used, uh, in conjunction with preservation deals, um, that flipped over time because J51's cost schedule wasn't updated, um, It was, the assessed value cap for that program wasn't reconsidered, and over the last decade, it was 421A that was the, the main source of new stabilized apartments. So that has to be a consideration in all of this. 421G, which was used in Lower Manhattan, was incredibly successful, um, but it did not have an income-restricted component. So in today's environment, we have to talk about it, and we have to think about what the costs are. Are for providing something like that, and in a lot of ways, the cost of not doing affordable housing, given all of the the constraints or in in the marketplace and and what people need.
0: It, it sounds like what what you're saying is that given the cost of conversion uh, from the get go, if there's an affordable housing uh, component, and it sure seems like there will be, and and frankly should be right, absent uh, a 420A program or or it's something similar to it. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult for folks to spend the money to convert if there's an affordable housing component, and even if there isn't potentially, certainly if there is uh, in light of the costs. I gather you think that's a, a fair statement.
1: I think it's fair to say that if government and, and the public wants affordable housing as a result of conversions that there's going to be a cost associated with that and if they want a successful conversions program in which it generates rental housing that includes affordable housing there has to be a government financial tool to help make that happen.
0: one of the challenges is that a lot of the uh, uh, potential conversion candidates are might be in areas that are sort of outlying that is to say they're in parts of the city or the outer boroughs, Um, that weren't thought of as residential neighborhoods. And they weren't thought of as places where there might be a significant amount of residential density. Or they've become areas that that don't have a a certain amount of residential density. Hence, these areas may not have schools, or or they may not have the things we need to support in a new residential community. Um, I, I gather this is a challenge that the city will have to be thinking about when it considers how to Legislate uh, new and create new rules. uh, How how much of a challenge do you think that is? And this is, of course, connected to the EIS that'll be required when the city changes the rules to create this new, new ability.
1: You remember with those big based buildings we were talking about in the center of those buildings and we're like, what are we going to do with them? Yeah. That's a great location for uh, the gymnasium for the school and the classrooms that surround it. Right. Like I, I think, again, this idea of flexibility and ensuring that the rules and a program are written in such a way where the building doesn't just serve itself and it can serve a community. Um you know, I, I, this is a perennial issue in lower Manhattan where the school seats, are there sufficient school seats? You know, we're, we're taking a, a broader lens here. If, if we're going to take a broader lens here, I should say, do we have school seat capacity? And what that means is has to be part of the conversation and, and the review.
0: Another challenge is that a lot of buildings are, are sitting in manufacturing districts where housing is not permitted, uh, whether it's the garment district, the area south of Madison Square Park, uh, the meatpacking district. Long Island City still so has a very large M zone. These areas might otherwise be great candidates for conversions and, of course, new housing development, but are off limits because they're zoned for manufacturing. This conversion law, as we as we think of it, you know, can't really apply to office buildings and manufacturing zones because, by definition, housing is not not permitted. Do you have anything to add to that?
1: Well, that's the current. Regulatory framework, right? We're, we're talking about what does it mean to change the regulatory framework and, and get away from this idea of strict separation of uses by by zones. Um, if we're talking about con- allowing for office conversions in manufacturing districts, I think it raises a question of MIH applicability or the city's mandatory inclusionary housing program. Um, that's not a bad thing. I think it's just a question that needs to be sorted through in terms of the, the legal implications of, of allowing residential floor area where none had previously been permitted. Those same manufacturing districts are closely, um, I want to say, closely uh, aligned with transit and access to jobs and access to schools, and, and they're not necessarily the the manufacturing districts of yore if we're looking at Manhattan. Um, I think that's a different case when we start looking at both manufacturing districts and office buildings outside of core Manhattan when we start thinking through how neighborhoods change. That being said, neighborhoods change and what should flexibility look like so we don't have to have this conversation again in, in 30 years when the technology we're putting in is again obsolete and, and we You've done something cooler and better in terms of air filtration and facade treatments and, you know, retail corridors are now in new places.
0: So just for our listeners, uh, in order to do this, what we're talking about, this, this lofty idea, pun intended, (laughs) <laughs> um it is to go through Euler right this this change itself just briefly basha what, what do we need to do to make this happen
1: oh before we even get to Euler we we need changes to the multiple dwelling law at the end of the day the multiple dwelling law is what authorizes the city to look at any of this um the multiple dwelling law has an age limitation it has limitations on the creation of of new courts um, and existing buildings and there's probably the need for more flexibility around um, you know you know, distance between windows and things like that. Then it's it's a question for the city, right? Like the city could do a citywide program that goes to all 59 community boards and all five borough boards and all five borough presidents and back to city planning and the city council and uh, do a, a pretty lengthy environmental review. Um, or do they take a neighborhood by neighborhood approach? Um, there's a lot of, I want to say, methods in between that, right? Is it a straight... Revision to Article One, Chapter Five. How many special districts do they have to go into? So it's just to me, it's always a matter of resources, and uh, as we know, the uh, the agencies are resource constrained, and you know maybe we don't get everything in every place, but what are the things that would help the most? Um, you know, right now, the ability to do these in commercial office districts where residential use is already permitted, uh, there's an age limitation. And does that age limitation make sense anymore? It's certainly a good place to start the conversation.
0: Well, this has been uh, weighty and comprehensive. And at the same time, I I think it helped us really all understand it. It's always sometimes a challenge to take something that is complex like this and, and, and drill it down as you have, and 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 make it real. So, thank you, Barsha. My pleasure. And um, I, I would just say, to your point, uh, we do need a robust staff at the city level and at, at city planning to to do this kind of work uh, because it's important for the for the city. And I I, I know that Rebney would would agree with the need for a, a strong and vibrant planning department, right? Yes. Well, thank you once again, uh, and thank you everyone for listening in. And uh, I hope you'll continue to engage with us. And you can certainly contact me and you can certainly contact Basha at Redney. Should you have questions about this or, and want to continue the dialogue? Any last words or we're good?
1: You, you let me talk about zoning for about 20 minutes. I'm happy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we speak the same language. Thank you all and uh, happy fall and everyone stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com.